You've seen her fly. Now watch her move to a brand new network. That's right. The CW has a new hero when Supergirl lands October 10th. It's the season two premiere of the show critics call Pure Blissful Fun. This season, the Man of Steel will finally be revealed as Supergirl's Melissa Benoist teams up with Tyler Hoechlin, the newest Superman in the DC Universe. It's a superhuman family reunion when these Kryptonian cousins join forces in the fight for justice. And if you're wondering if the next president will be a woman, have your answer because Linda Carter, the original Wonder Woman, guest stars as Supergirl's commander-in-chief. Even though Supergirl has her hands full fighting evil full-time, Cara Danvers is facing challenges of her own. She knows what it takes to be a hero, but Kara is trying to figure out how to fit in the human race while taking on a new job, new friends, and a new love who's out of this world. An evil corporate empire will rise that bears the name of an age-old nemesis, Luther. Supergirl and Superman come face-to-face with Lex Luthor's next of kin, Lillian and Lena. And as you might expect, the Luther family shares a passion for power that can only be satisfied by a different kind of green, kryptonite. Supergirl, all new episodes every Monday, now only on The CW. Today on Anatomy of a Movie, we talk about the film adaptation, The Girl on the Train. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Popcorn Talk Network. Today on Anatomy of a Movie, we are dissecting The Girl on the Train, a very highly anticipated film, highly anticipated film adaptation, starring Emily Blunt, directed by... Uh, Taylor Tate. No, actually, it's Tate Taylor. Two names. You know? Either way, I mean, if you're if it's a library, it would it's be Taylor Tate. Yeah, that's but true. But if it's yeah, Tate Taylor. I'm your host, Marissa Serafini. You can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. Joining me, I have. Hi guys, first timer here, Brianna Phipps. You can find me bphipps14 Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Jeffrey C. Graham. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is so much fun. This is our staff panel. Yeah, this is. <laughs> All three of us actually work at the studio. It's funny, Bree and I probably work the most, the most closely, yeah. and we never hosted together. So this is kind of fun. We got Zach in the booth, who's one of our engineers and producers. So yes. let's kill it, y'all. Let's rep for uh, yes. rep for the studio. The girl on a train. Real quick overall thoughts. Brianna, let's start with you, being the new voice here. I I actually really did enjoy the film. I had like a lot of fun random moments when stuff would happen where I felt like I was just like, what? <laughs> but um, I did think that there were a couple points that I wished it had moved a little faster. But I got the ir- irony of like being on a train and waiting. Mm. Okay. So I got that part of it. You kind of just blew my mind. Really? Maybe I like the movie more than I thought I did <laughs> because I kind of had problems with the pacing. To be honest, the performances were fantastic. I really think Emily Blunt's portrayal of this alcoholic was one of the best performances we've seen all year, and I kind of hope she gets a couple award nominations for this. I sure hope so, too. I don't think she will because the movie isn't super well regarded, and a lot of the negativity that critics have been pointing out about the film I kind of agree with. That being said, I do want to praise the performances, and there were things I really liked about this movie. Overall, I kind of left it feeling... So, so. I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I actually started reading the book about a year ago before I knew it was going to be like big. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up not finishing it only because I was going to a different location. I was changing states and stuff. On so a train? I, yeah. If only. <laughs> I was on a plane more so. <laughs> um, but I didn't, unfortunately, I couldn't finish the book. So, like, I kind of knew about it a while ago. And then I found out that it was being adapted into a film. I was like, ah, oh, shoot, I should have read it. Well, 
But uh, watching it, and I went into this film not really knowing the story, but the premise, really. But I thoroughly enjoyed this film. It was a very well-set-up thriller. And it had all the tropes of being a thriller and a mystery, kind of. And it, it exceeded my expectations and what I was wanting uh, in this film. So, you know, let's get into it. DreamWorks Pictures uh, bought the rights to the, the film. Well, actually bought the rights to the novel obviously written by Paula Hawkins prior to the actual publication of it. So they were on this. They were, they were like, we're having really this quick. one. We're like, we know this is going to be successful. We're going to buy it. So, yeah. And they got Tate Taylor to be involved in this film because he directed The Help, which was another DreamWorks film. And so he had those relations already set up in play, and they got him involved. And then he met with Paula and Emily Blunt on the same day in London, and that's pretty much where the ball got rolling. Hmm. Yeah, Tate Taylor, it, it makes sense as a directorial choice, not only because he had a relationship with the studio, but because The Help was also a novel. So I'm sure they thought, you know, this director knows how to handle material from a different source, and The Help mm-hmm. was great. Yeah, The Help was Help such was a good movie. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. That's a great book, too. Yeah. Um, so, yes, Tate Taylor definitely has the experience of adapting and having a successful film afterwards, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, and so let's get into the writing of it. Actually, the screenplay was written by Aaron Cressida Wilson, and but obviously adapted from the novel. And it was what Aaron Cressida says. Oh, sorry. Um, Paula Hawkins says, It was basically handed over, and everybody just got on with this. She tells Entertainment Weekly, I've never written for a film. I would have found it very difficult, but I wouldn't have felt confident about it. That's, that's the reason why she didn't do the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But, it is um, a very, very different thing to write a book and then yeah. write a script. It, it just translates it differently. For sure. I mean, you can have the concept, but like it really takes the skill set of screenwriters knowing how to properly adapt a story from a book to a screen. Right. And yeah, so that's where Aaron Cressida came in. And yeah, Paula also says, like the character of Lisa Kudrow, who I think is only really mentioned in one line of the book, is not even really named. But it was because of Aaron and Taylor Tate. Tate Taylor. Oh, my goodness, these names. <laughs> um, it, was, it was those two that actually turned Aaron, uh, Lisa, Lisa Kudrow's character into a storytelling device that Paul Hawkins wouldn't have the skill to do. Okay. So. It's interesting. You mentioned that not only was the book, o- the book optioned by the studio before the book even came out, but um, I found out the first draft of the script of the movie was turned in the day the book came out. So not only had the book been optioned before, um, not only sorry, not only had the book been optioned by the studio before it even came out, but there was literally a draft of the first of the movie that was turned into the studio the day the book came How out. How crazy so. would it be if you were like a person like reading the book along with reading the script yeah. at the same time and getting those firsthand like, oh, this is what's different. It makes me think of that scene in Devil Wears Prada where. Um, Anne Hathaway has to get the Harry Potter manuscripts for America's oh. <laughs> two kids. Like you forget that there is a lot of hurdles and hoops that go through publication. So mm-hmm. a lot of these stories have been established for a year or two before anyone else sees them. So I'm sure this was extremely top secret as all this stuff was happening. Yeah, I was just amazed because like how successful they already knew this book was going to be. Yeah, and the fact that they can automatically turn it into a screenplay, like pre- pretty much simultaneously as the book was getting published. That mm-hmm. that I mean. There's a lot of foresight. Those instincts, yeah. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but I bet whoever read the first draft of that was like, ooh, I see a Gone Girl here. And I know we're going to get into it, but I'm sure that was part of the reason that 
the option happened so quickly. Yeah, and as we always know, that the book is generally different, most of the time better than the film. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about the book. It's one of the, obviously, quick bestsellers for Paula Hawkins. But the book actually debuted at number one in the New York Times fiction bestseller list of 2015. So, yes, this is a fairly newer book. And it spent 13 consecutive weeks at number one. That's, I mean, that's ridiculous. 13 weeks up until April 2015. And, uh, yeah. the So we'll talk a little bit about the book differences compared to the films. Detective Riley in the book was actually a man with a female sidekick. And we see in the film, Detective Riley is Alice and Janney, who actually has a male sidekick. So they kind of married the two a little bit. I like that. We were talking about, like, we're just like, Alice and Janney's everywhere. (laughs) She She, is. She's everywhere. Girls working, so good for her. And uh, another big thing is that the location of the book actually takes place in London, but... They moved the location to New York and the story itself to New York. I kind of feel like I would have liked to have seen this movie be in London. I wonder if they were originally planning on it being in London, be saying that um, Emily Blunt was originally part of the whole thing because mm-hmm. um, she is British. Right. So I wonder if that was originally going to be the plan and they changed it later on. I don't know. I mean, like, New York is such an iconic cinematic city, and maybe yeah. they thought it'll appeal more to Americans if we put it in a domestic city, but. I don't know. I have. I kind of wonder if the movie might have tonally just worked more as a whole if it had been in London, because the movie did feel kind of British in a way. I and, don't know if you know what I mean. But. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the overall concept of riding a train, like, when you think New York, I think subway with train, mm-hmm. underground. Right. Yeah. I don't think overground. Um, London, I would... They, I mean, they also have the tube, though, so I don't know. I know what you mean. There's just something that seems so British about a train, yeah. yeah. And, like, even, like, the weather, it was kind of a gloomy, gloomy. a lot of gray, and there was a, scenes with fog. It just kind of... I kind of almost felt like I was in London for some of it, but then, like, I was like, oh, I guess we're in New York. I, I don't think it was essential, but I would have been interested to see what would, this movie would have looked like if they kept it in London. Yeah, and Paula Hawkins even said she didn't really mind the move to London, or from London to New York, because she says the story's not really about the location. That's yeah. just the backdrop. It's true. It's really about the, the characters themselves. And she's like, she she did mention in an interview that she thought that London was just, like, an imagination of her mind oh of rachel's mind it's really you could take this story and move it to anywhere in the world yeah it's just a backdrop so true not really a character in and of itself and um another thing is that megan's confession that she never wanted a pregnancy in the first place is actually in the book whereas the film we see we'll get into the characters obviously but uh, megan we see in the film that she actually had the her death of the baby from from before drowning in the bathtub. So in the book, I'm confused. So How did in the... the book, they it's like alluded to the fact that Megan never wanted the baby, so it might have had an abortion in it. Oh, oh okay. therefore she was deemed as a baby killer, quote unquote. Huh. And so therefore, like a missing baby. I mean, people don't really know what happened. To Interesting. The baby. So in this and one, they just chose to make it the yeah death of the child, meaning she doesn't want another one. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yes. And then also, in the book, Rachel and Scott actually sleep together and have sex together, and in the film, they don't. Hmm. 
So they 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 purposely kept. Rachel I can't, I kept chased. thinking that Rachel and Scott were going to though. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I kept waiting for that scene to happen. So when it didn't, I was kind of like confused as to the whole thing because I thought that was going to happen at some point. Well, actually, they did. I mean, this is later on in a rundown, which you guys can download uh, and follow along with us. They actually did have two sex scenes scripted for the film, but they ended up cutting it out. Oh. So yeah, it, I think it was actually Tate Taylor's. Um, decision to keep Rachel as chaste as possible. Like, she'll think about it, but she actually, its it was good, good to not have her sleep with anybody. I kind mm-hmm. of almost would want her to, though, because I think that it would give more reason to him, his outrage of her lying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something almost too innocent about their relationship that all of a sudden when that turn happened, it felt a little bit like... I don't feel like they know each other well enough or there's enough of a justification for all of this rage. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a little more interesting, I agree, Brie, if they had had like, some kind of encounter in the past. I don't know. Yeah, so those are pretty much the, the biggest differences if you've read the book to watching the film, which unfortunately none of us have read the book here. I plan so, to read the book now. So. Yeah, yeah. Really. <laughs> actually I'm going to read the book. Uh, my mom is going to send it to me in the mail. Um, but, yes, yeah, so... We're going to really dissect the film itself, Anatomy of a Movie. So, yeah, let's talk about the the convoluted memories that we see in this film. Um, We see the different perspectives, mostly from Rachel's disoriented, drunken perspective, and then, like, later on, the storytelling in a nonlinear way of other people actually telling her the real truth of what Mm -hmm. happened Mm -hmm. and her putting together the pieces what did you think of how they conveyed them on screen i really liked what they did with that i liked like that during the whole first part of the movie we have all these flashbacks to like her wonderful marriage and how she screwed it up and it's not even like that intense until later and then like even when she's remembering it the way that she's been told later it's like it's so much more intense like so we were kind of traveling through their life mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden having to go back through and retravel through it the way it actually happened i thought that was a really cool way to go about it yeah, I think it worked. It definitely did remind me of Gone Girl. I saw this movie with my girlfriend, and we were saying it would have been... It was almost a little disappointing that it was just like, oh, he told her this, and she believed it. And of course, that's what happens. It's, I mean, but when you're so drunk, when you can't physically right. put together pieces in your mind, you have right. to just go... She was being... Especially uh, someone you trust as much as like your of husband. Of course. She was... What's the word I'm looking for? She's being steam... She was being gaslighted. Gaslighted. Yeah, I was going to say steam lit, which is not the term. <laughs> So the gaslighting thing was interesting. It would I almost wondered if there's going to be like this, like she was being drugged or like more of a conspiracy. Um, that might have made the movie a little too out there, but I think that's kind of what I liked about some of these marital infidelity thrillers is when it does get really, really extreme instead of just manipulating an alcoholic. I think that trope feels like something I've seen in like TV movies, whereas sometimes when I go to like a go to see a movie in theaters, I want something really stakesy. But I think there's something to be said about just the innocence of taking advantage of someone mm-hmm. when they're so low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it probably maybe plays more true to life. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I'm a big fan of nonlinear storytelling, especially if it's conveyed in a intelligent way. And I think they did it really smart because we, the audience, you know, who aren't really familiar with the characters and just watching the film, we're learning a lot about um, the husband, Tom. Tom. When he first appears on the screen, he seems like a nice guy. And like we feel bad for him because Rachel is such a drunk. And we're like, oh, this poor, nice, seemingly nice man has to put up with this drunk. And then we later learn that he's actually an asshole. Mm-hmm. He's the one gaslighting her. It's like, oh, okay, there's that slow progression of realizing he's actually the bad guy. 
and Rachel's actually good. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, like we're always kind of rooting for Rachel through right. the whole film. We know she's the protagonist of the film, but I think it was really smart that the slow reveal of that Tom's bad, along with the reveal of the twisted memories at the same time, I think was brilliantly married. Yeah, I did. I was surprised. Like, I will give it that. I was like, oh yeah, I yeah. And there was four or five moments in this movie where I was really pleasantly shocked by the plot. So mm-hmm. there were definitely moments in this movie I loved. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about the twisted relationships. I was trying to just figure out everybody. Mm-hmm. Who's who? Who's with who? Who's sleeping with who? You know? Everyone's, like, connected in some way or another. Yeah. yeah. And, like, in, I generally like those stories, too. But when you're learning about three individual women, now you're learning about three individual men. It is a lot of people to learn within an hour and 45 minute type of film you know so and especially when two of them two of the girls look so similar you're like who yeah it would have been i almost could have seen casting anna and megan a little differently first of all can we just acknowledge that um hayley bentwell is that her name looks so much like jennifer lawrence Lawrence, this whole time i was like is that jennifer lawrence everyone thinks that yes um but yeah i i kind of sometimes had first of all i loved too that this movie was about three women we never get that so like that was awesome and i think they were all pretty complex women and different i think casting in a them a little differently might have helped me distinguish them a bit um i guess it was good that Haley Bentwell looks so young. I think that was one thing that helped. But I mean, they all had very different personalities too. So I actually didn't have an issue with it, even though like they're both blonde white women. But right, uh, just like Haley's uh, portrayal of it, the character was just very like so numb to everything mm. mm-hmm. that like I and uh, what's the other? Sorry, I'm working on Anna. Anna uh, is so like strong and like. In, in certain ways and like very outspoken so I it wasn't hard for me to, to differentiate between yeah. the two of them because they just were two completely different people yeah at first I thought they were maybe sisters or something and when then, she's at the house yeah and then I was like okay that's believable and then we learned that she that Megan is actually the nanny it is funny though there was just so much kind of incest between <laughs> like when Rachel went to the doctor for therapy I was just like oh god I was like this is just the layer like that's going to make everything so complicated. And I like I love complicated stories because you know you're always trying to figure it out. I I find that very interesting and uh, um, entertaining. But also you got to remember like some a lot of people might not keep up with that. Right. A lot of people within like the hour and forty five minute time limit, people aren't going to still realize who these people are. Yeah. Um, I wonder how audiences have been doing. I did okay. Like it. I the first third I was a little bit like. But then it all became very clear to me yeah. once we were past that. So I figured it out too eventually. Eventually, yeah. but uh, I, I it, it was just fun to see the twisted relationships. How each of them are related in some ways. Yeah. That now and how every Tom man had was the ex husband right. of Rachel who's stalking Anna, who is the current wife. the ex employee of Megan, who's dating the shrink. Right. Who now Rachel has been seeing. Right, I know. There was a lot. <laughs> no, it was a lot. But it but that's what makes it fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think of the big reveal at the end? We would now realize that Tom's been gaslighting Rachel. He's the one that actually killed So Megan. I was kind of suspecting from a point that maybe it was him. It was from the when the phone uh, didn't have a number, when it was an unlisted number. Mm-hmm. I started thinking then 
I think he might actually be the one, and this might be this whole thing like he has with Megan. But I didn't see it coming that he was going to have been like messing with her mind and like creating all these fake scenarios of what really happened. That part really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of thought it was going to be the doctor who was really the bad guy at the end, and we had, he ended up being kind of an asshole. But like, I thought he was gonna. I thought that was me the big reveal. Um, and then yeah, I was surprised. I thought it worked. Um, yeah, I think like tone is the one thing I kind of have problems with this movie. Mm. Like, I kind of wish it would have been a bit more like sinister or like, I don't know. It, it kind of played out in a way that was very somber when we learned, but, it, but I still liked the, from a plot perspective, it very much surprised me. I, I was very surprised too, cause I liked the big reveals and throughout the whole film, I was guessing who did it. Because there were some moments I thought it was maybe it was Rachel. Because like the way that built it up and her dis- disconnected memories and her being drunk, like she's not the most reliable right. candidate. Yeah, the it's only like, way I thought that it was her though was like that she thought it was Anna. Yeah, and that she killed her thinking it was Anna. Oh, I see. In a stupor. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So there were different moments I was like guessing who it could have been. It's like if it's not Rachel, then it has to be someone who's also very, uh, um, like very attached to everybody would be Tom. Yeah. So you suspected so Tom? I, I eventually suspected Tom, and I realized I was like it's probably not Rachel because I don't think it'd be a very satisfi- satisfying story right. if our protagonist was someone. Who was the actual killer? Also, someone who was that drunk to like actually hide the body. Yeah, <laughs> like drag it and cover it with leaves mm-hmm. it was a little unrealistic. It's like I wish I was that productive when I was drunk. <laughs> My apartment would be clean after every single party I throw. Um, one question I had about this, and now I'm forgetting what I was going to ask. It'll come to me. We can move on. And well, I think while you think of that, yeah, it, it was it was smart the way that they set it up because we're still trying to figure it out. And when we find out when Rachel's head was hit and she's bleeding and whatnot. I was like, maybe she was in that physical um, tussle with Yeah, because there was a lot of blood. <laughs> with Megan. Yeah. So I was like, maybe she did get drunk. A lot of people are angry drunks. They they do things that they can't think of and remember the next day. It's like, good chances it could have been Rachel. And she doesn't remember it. But like now we find out, due to the memories of everything coming back to her, that was actually Tom that hit her. At I was one like, point, okay, if Tom hits her, what else is he capable of? Right. At one portion, I did think it was almost Anna. Yeah. I thought that she okay. was going to find out about it, Tom and Megan, and then it Kill was going to reveal. Yeah. Like, the minute she found the phone, I was like, oh, she's going to find out, and then it's going to reveal that, like, she killed her, that she's known all this time. Like, I don't know. I thought that we were going to somehow go down yeah. that road. I can see it. I mean, there was a lot of great red herrings. The, the other interesting thing was this, this red-haired guy she meets, like, on the train and sees on the train. Oh, yeah, yeah, they got the he hat. Was, he was in it, like, for the first half, and we didn't really see him again, unless I'm forgetting. Um, so that kind of bummed me out. Like, I almost wish he would have factored in more, because I'm like, why did you show us him three times? Was it, because I thought it was going to be him? Like, I was like, was this Some just a random outsider? We did get that answer um, when she went to the bar later, and she's like, why are you following me? Yeah. And whatnot, and we found out that he was actually the guy who tried helping her when she was drunk in the tunnel. And I guess that's why. Okay, yeah, so I'm just like, remembering. We did... And I think that's where they played up the drunkenness yeah. part really smart because maybe when you are drunk, some people do get paranoid and feel like people are constantly watching you. Hence, there's all those shots of people just looking at her. I've got one more quick story question while we're on story, if that's okay. Sure. The video that she shoots of herself that was potentially incriminating. Yeah. 
Was, I'm like, I was wondering when they were going to do something I know. with it. Like, when was the cops going to find the video? Exactly. Did she post it online? Was there a payoff with that, or was it just supposed to make us nervous? I think it was just to make us nervous. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it was to make us nervous, and apparently that's also in the book. Yeah. If, uh, it, but that was more like, in a different way, slightly, but like I think in the book, it's a mental thought voiceover oh. from Rachel, that specific line of what she would do to... Anna and bash her head in and whatnot. Oh, wow. I think this could have worked better. Like, it would have been really interesting if in the last half hour, even if it's just one scene of like, well, now we have this video. I kind of wish we would have seen it come back. It bummed me out a bit. If the only purpose of that was to make a voiceover work on film, I kind of feel like that bums. Like, that was one one example of a moment where I was like, I wish this would have paid off a bit more, but that's okay. I mean... It may not have had a payoff, but it definitely had a setup. And yeah. I think that was a, another factor that made us believe that it was Rachel. Right. It could have been Rachel. If she's thinking it, maybe yeah. she did actually execute it. Yeah, that's I true. just wanted either the cops to find the video or like the girl that was in the video to be like coming forward being like, well, this girl told me to kill this person. Right. Yeah. I was thinking like security cameras in that place. I was like, if it's on her cell phone and no one gets that content... It's somewhere on a security Like, camera. even like, if it was just put that so that the cops going to find her because they have that piece of footage and they want to, like, arrest her, and so that's how they go to the house or something. Like, even something is connecting it like that. Right. That Agreed. Won. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Emily Blunt, shall we? I love her. I mm. love her. She's amazing. I've seen just about every single one of her films. Uh, obviously, she plays Rachel, and uh, she actually did a lot of research for... Uh, playing someone who is as drunk as the character Rachel. She watched a lot of Intervention. She watched all of those. Oh, nice. And, but because she was also pregnant with her second child, this was all real acting. She didn't do method acting. She <laughs> didn't actually drink. It was like she actually brought herself to that level of drunkenness every single day. She did a great job. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a movie that I've not liked her in. True. Yeah. That's the one thing, even critics who didn't love this movie, everyone's praising her performance, which I'm glad about. And I've heard from actors um, that playing drunk is one of the hardest things as an actor because, like, you want to portray that you're not fully there, but it can so quickly get cartoonish. Mm -hmm. And I thought she played it so convincingly. Because the proper way um, in acting class, what I was always told, the proper way to play drunk is to act like you're not drunk. Mm. Because that's what you do when you are drunk. You're trying to make people believe you're not. Right. And so when you're trying... And most people end up trying to be drunk, which makes it the cartoonish... As an actress, Brie, what did you think of her portrayal, especially as someone who is drinking? I I thought she did a, a wonderful job. Even, like, the sad moments, like the little moment mm. where she is so into the baby because she always wanted one, and the bottles are in her purse, and, like, yeah. her, like, being embarrassed at the same time as being obviously drunk, like... Also, the makeup was just great for it because yeah. it was not over the top, but it was just like the little bit of smearness, the little bit of like dead eye. Like, I thought she did a great job portraying mm-hmm. that. Me too. I think she did great. Um, she's great in every single movie. We've actually done a lot of anatomies <laughs> with uh, her in it, and yeah, she just. I wish. Yeah, I wish, definitely. <laughs> that was um, the one film that I was kind of nervous with her, and I still loved her. Yeah. No, but she's great. She can sing as well. She's very, very talented. Uh, she says that this was a part I've never been and never played before. Rachel is very toxic physically and emotionally and incredibly tortured, self-loathing sort of person, and I thought it was a thrilling to have a protagonist that's a blackout drunk. So a combination of the personal challenge uh, was personal challenge for me and the idea of this unreliable narrator, which I think was cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she was definitely on board for this, and I think it, she did an amazing job. It's definitely... 
even a step further harder to play someone not only that's a drunk, but that is a stalker drunk. Mm. Yeah. To, and to make people feel sorry for you, even though you're stalking someone. Yeah, it was a, a stalker drunk, dangerous, mentally, you know, mentally unstable drunk, but also an addictive drunk too, which has very um, scary qualities as right. well. I'm calling it now. We're going to see a Golden Globe nomination for Emily Blunt. I don't think she'll get an Oscar nomination, but I feel like a lot of times the Golden Globes loves to champion. Okay. But is Golden Globes yeah. one that have the comedy and the drama? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Golden Globes is both television. I'm thinking of this like The Tourist, where like the movie maybe didn't do so well with critics, but the performances were loved. Well, you know, Emily Blunt actually won a Golden Globe for Gideon's Daughters. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just have a feeling we'll see a nomination at the Golden Globes for her, but we'll see. That's my prediction. I, I think so, too. Yeah. Um... I think she did a fantastic job for this. And the, uh, this was, like, early on in her pregnancy, and it was actually um, uh, one of her coworkers found out that she was pregnant. Gosh, as this. someone who's pregnant, there's so much probably psychologically, like, this movie's all about, like, babies dying and, like, right. stealing babies, and she's drinking. Or not drinking. being able to get pregnant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it must have been, like, kind of a psychologically torturing theme, like, for her to be like dealing with like I'm pregnant and this movie's all about like the horrors that can happen involving pregnancy <laughs> like that's an interesting yeah it's definitely ironic and yeah it was uh, Justin Thoreau who found out that she was pregnant because there was that mo- motion when she's on the uh, on the floor and she's running away from Tom's character and they gave her the directions like so you're in the sitting position you just get up and run she's like I don't know I don't think I can do that <laughs> and then that that like that I mean that's a Fairly simple movement, and Justin Thoreau put two and two together. She's like, she's probably pregnant. She's John Krasinski's wife. Yeah, John yeah. Hollywood's favorite. I know couple. they're adorable. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Thoreau laughs like, you're not 80s year old, and you don't have arthritis, so you're either pregnant or you've gotten really lazy. <laughs> so um, good for him for figuring that out. Yeah. But yeah, he was the only one on set that knew nice. until eventually later. But um, that was during her first trimester, so it was still fairly early for her. Um, let's talk about Haley. Bennett, who plays Megan Hippel. She's on the up and up. Yeah. I love that you have in here, though, that she was music and lyrics, because it's the very first thing I ever saw her in. Yep. I forgot she about was. that movie. This, that's like Hugh Grant's a songwriter movie. Yeah, yeah. she's like the ditzy like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. singer. I thought she was also great. Pretty much all the performances in this movie I was really happy with. Um, I think this isn't an easy role. It's a little, like, numb, and she kind of has to be cold. Yeah, she was the least connective character for me. Yeah. Um, to identify with just because she's so numb to everything and she just doesn't seem to have any cares with what happens at mm-hmm. all. Right. I was having a hard time, and this might sound bad, but I don't mean it to, but I was having a hard time connecting to Megan mm-hmm. or like finding her as a likable character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she was the one who was killed, but like I didn't really like anything about her. You're like, maybe it's good she got killed. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. You said that. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Well, I think that might be why they killed her is because they needed us to be on Emily Blunt's character's side Mm -hmm. and to have someone that wasn't necessarily likable. Like, you feel bad, but not enough to not like Emily Blunt if she did do it. Mm -hmm. It was definitely the second half of this movie that got us on Team Haley a little more because we learned about all the problems with her past. And as an actor, she had to make some very courageous... She had to shoot some courageous things 
for us to really feel for her. She also was like the one person that did the most nudity in them. Exactly. Yeah, she yeah. did. And yeah, she said she didn't really have a problem with that um, because it was more like the, the mental struggles mm-hmm. of her character. But what I found interesting was actually because Haley Bennett was just in The Magnificent Seven, which is probably still on in theaters right now, uh, she was filming down in Baton Rouge, and the costume designer for The Magnificent Seven knew Tate Taylor. And recommended Haley Bennett wow. for Megan back when they were filming Magnificent Seven. So uh, the director met with Haley when they were filming Magnificent Seven down there in Baton Rouge, and like they they had like a dinner and just talked about the film. And that's he's like, "Yep, this is Megan." Wow. So and that's how she got casted. Thanks to the costume designer, the Magnificent. See, people, Seven. it pays off to be friends with See? people even in low positions, like yes. costume designer. It's like costume designers, <laughs> I'm just like, kidding, they're not it's low connections. Positions. It's who you know. Uh, yes, let's talk about Rebecca Ferguson. I think she's an amazing actress. Mm-hmm. She's she's been in a lot of things as well. But her as Anna, the more p- m- mother maternal character of this. Yeah, film. she's the one that in the beginning I was feeling really bad for. Um, even though I knew like that she was the mistress at one point, but I was feeling bad. And then throughout the movie, as it went on, I started feeling less bad for her. Mm. Like I started kind of like being like, mm. like especially when she was like, "I miss being the other woman." I was like, "Okay, yeah, Fine. yeah." That was a moment I was like, "Oh, I was feeling bad for you, but like now that you're actually taking enjoyment that Rachel's kind of being tortured now." Yeah, I, I mean. She's kind of like the, um, did you guys watch Desperate Housewives? Yes, of course. Like the Brie Vandekamp. Like the, uh, <laughs> you know, like the really put together mom who seems put together, but then maybe is like kind of a bitch a little bit. I, I know that's not a good word probably for me to be using, but like a cold, has a cold Brie side. Brie was my favorite housewife. Oh, she's great. Oh yeah, my I gosh. Her. I mean, I, all of them. That show is so good. But, so good. Um, I think, I, I actually did think of Rosamund Pike. I thought of her character in Gone Girl a little bit, like the seemingly put together mom with like a bit of a dark side. She just didn't seem like that likable to me as the movie went on. Like she just had all these things that I was just like, besides sex, like I don't know what he, what connection they have, mm-hmm. if they have any at all. Wealth, maybe. Him? Or yeah. Because she gave up her job. I mean, he was wealth. Yeah, you're right. He, she was a That's real a good estate. point. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. For me, she just was. She just became more and more unlikable. And then even, like, when the fact that she didn't want to leave him, even though she, like, knew he was cheating, and, like, I don't know. Like, she just became more... I didn't feel bad for her at all towards the end. Like, I had sympathy for her at the beginning, and then, like, I was just lost all of it for it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, I liked her at the beginning. She slowly... I lost interest on in only knowing that, like, she enjoyed... Rachel being in torture, I was like, no, you you don't take pleasure in other people's pains. And then, uh, but at the end, I was kind of like, you're kind of, I don't want to say stupid, but it's like, what are you still doing with Tom, knowing right. that what he just did to you? Well, that's always the question you ask. If you get with someone who's cheating, you have to know that, like... I mean, you don't have to know. Like, there have been instances where people have cheated with someone and they right. end up with that person for the rest of their life but there are instances but th- there is that question in your head where are they going to do it again because right. you were the person that was the person they were cheating on yeah it was more so i was more frustrated with her at the end like why are you still with tom now knowing that he's been cheating on you this whole time it's like are you that blind in love to stay with him yeah Maybe. She didn't even seem to be in love with him, though. I she think just seemed to be in love with the idea of 
everything, like the idea of the whole family. That's exactly what it is. She was someone who so valued family values and having a home and having a kid and having a perfect cookie-cutter family that she would do everything she could to try to at least maintain the illusion of that, And having the idea that she was able to have with him what uh, Rachel was never able to have with him, like, Mm -hmm. just made me feel worse for Rachel. That was kind of gross. Yeah. Having a child and... And like having a child, not even just having a child, like it, I mean, I don't know how long of time span had passed between the divorce and them now, but like, it seemed like right away they had a kid, which was just fire to the Mm. fuel. Yeah. Yeah. More salt to that wound. Uh, Let's talk about Justin Theroux, obviously big in The Leftovers, and uh, he plays Tom, the antagonist of the film, the one who actually kills Megan, what did you think of his performance throughout beginning, middle, end, how he carried his character? I think he did a really great job of keeping us in the dark as to who he really was. Like, there was little, little, like, now looking back on it, I can, like, think of, like, little things he did or Mm -hmm. little instances where I'm like, oh, that's, that's because he was this person. But I didn't guess it at all when watching it the first time around. Yeah, I agree. I thought he was good. Yeah, I know that's not much. <laughs> it's like just good. I don't feel like there's a ton of specific details I can point to because I've kind of seen this character before in a lot of yeah, these but types he of marital took me by surprise when he like went so far as to like pour her a drink and then throw it in her face. Like I, I really started to hate. I was like, oh god, yeah, just get him. Like, yeah, he was vicious for sure. <laughs> what? It was turn. a very dramatic turn. Yeah, he did a good job portraying two different Toms. Like he was not just like mentally abusive. He was like physically, physically abusive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, he was just not a good guy, which was really upsetting because at first I did like him. Like, I actually felt bad for him. I was like, oh, because of the twisted gaslight memories. And because you're thinking, like, oh, he's, like, feels bad about what he did to Rachel. Like, even though she's still calling, he's still, like, telling her, like, no, don't worry about it. Like, you know. Yeah. Like, and I felt bad for him and I was like, no, he's a jerk. This dude has to go. And, but the, the interesting thing about Justin Theroux, he actually replaced Chris Evans due to uh, where Chris had a job out due to scheduling conflicts of this character. And uh, Thoreau just went off uh, the source material for the, the book for the film. And the cool thing is, actually, I read in interviews that, yes, because Tom is such a dark character, he was actually a really uh, nice guy on set. He's always what they said, a ray of sunshine. Oh, good. On set, I was like, good for being such a dark character. Yeah, good. You're not like your character. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's good, good, good that you're you're actually the opposite in real life. So I like him for that. Uh, let's talk about Luke Evans, who plays Scott. Uh, he's big in the Hobbit trilogy, and uh, he's going to be in Beauty and the Beast. I'm really excited. He's going to be gassed on in that, so I'm really excited. Um, what do you think about that Scott-Rachel relationship and how Luke played into this, pretty much? Um, like I said, like for his character, it was really hard for me to... I th- That was the one character I felt like I didn't get to know at all. Mm-hmm. Like, we had these like people saying that he was... And, uh, or I guess it was... Uh, Megan saying he was abusive in the office, but we never like see that. We never see his side of it or anything. So I'm like, tr- but and then we see a little bit of it when he gets really mad at Rachel. But it's like I'm trying to like connect to this character, but I don't feel like I know him. See, I kind of liked. I feel like he sort of had like a blue collar element to him, like a little maybe like big heart, but doesn't always know how to use it the right way. But I kind of found him to be likable, even in the moments when we did learn some of the dark sides of his personality. And maybe that owes to Luke Evans' performance. I haven't seen too much of him, but... 
Yeah, I think we might have learned a little bit more about him had they kept those sex scenes mm-hmm. in, not yeah. just for gratuitous matters, but maybe just to see like how well he is connected with Rachel. Right. Because like I agree with you, Brianna. I don't really remember much of his character other than the fact that he was married to Megan. I was like, okay, so Megan's also a cheater on who was cheating on him. Right. With multiple people. With multiple people. Um, so it's like, is how bad of a guy is he for her to? Yeah, and that's like the thing. It's like there's always two sides to a story. Yeah. So we need like I felt like I was missing half of the story here. Mm. I did feel bad for Scott because he seemed like the the one person who was completely out of the know and yeah. more people knew. And but it was interesting how Rachel was trying to tell him all this information, even though she didn't really know much on Megan. But I'm like, uh, don't listen to Rachel because she doesn't know. Right. And, and it was almost really sad that, like, this person that he's never met comes in and says, oh, it's friends with your wife, and he just believes it, which means, like, him and his wife must not have seen each other or talked to each other, like, ever. Right. For it's a good point. He just, all he's, he's like, oh, well, I didn't think she had that many friends. No, but I guess she does have I one. guess she does. Like, he, he's really not in the know of anything. But let's talk about Alice and Janney. We love her. Who doesn't love but Alice and Janney? If you don't love character. Alice and Janney, I don't know who you are. Get out. <laughs> right, you're not human. Yeah. Uh, but her as Detective Riley, I liked her because she was actually, I don't want to say scary, but intimidating. Uh-huh. Yeah, she was. She played the part in the way that you were like, get off her back. Yeah. Okay? Right? I just, yeah, I just feel like there's an element of when she shows up, you're like, ah, there's Alice and Janney. I like this movie. Like, yeah, I thought she was good. And like, it's you can tell probably it was the kind of thing where she's in four or five scenes so they could probably could get her for a week, shoot what they need with her, and then let her go. Yeah. Which is kind of a lot of... She does a lot of these in movies especially, like fun kind of maybe sixth on the cast list parts. Like that was Miss Peregrine's as well. Yeah. She played a therapist. Therapist. Yep. Yeah. It's the same... Oh, I guess she was a police officer in this, but I feel like the kind of quirky, charactery investigator. She's like great for that role. She did the thing, like, because I always end up hating investigators when I watch movies, and she did, and she did it, she played it right, because, like, I just don't like when they, like, won't let stuff go, and yeah. when I feel like they're, like, trying to entrap the people, it gets on my nerves, I'm like, stop it. Right. So I felt like she did a really good job, because she made me feel that. Yeah. Well, she did, because there was that moment when they were in the bathroom with mm. Detective Riley and Rachel, and she's, like, literally cornering her. And, like, trying to get the information. I'm like, oh, okay. And she's also very tall, so, like... Yeah, she's she already intimidating. And they shot, he shot her there. tall, too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, she she just looked intimidating. And I did I love... for Rachel for constantly not lying, but admitting the truth. Yeah, and I really liked that they did choose a woman here, because it was kind of fun to see a female-on-female um, investigator criminal. Especially dynamic. when we already have so many men in this that are, like, trying to, like, steer the ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it was nice seeing, like, a woman, like, taking charge, kind of. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's talk about Lisa Kudrow, who was a surprising appearance in this film, but she actually played a bigger role than what she was in the book. It's just funny. Every time I hear her voice, like, all I think in my head is Phoebe. I know. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, Phoebe's come a long way. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> Homeless one day, now she's running a business. <laughs> yeah, but Lisa Kudrow, who plays Martha, funny thing about this character, the character was actually called Monica. And we have the character of Rachel, so we have Monica and Rachel. You can't have those two in the same room again. So uh, when they were filming the train scenes, a lot of people are over the PA. They're like, okay, and Monica is coming, and now Rachel will enter the scene. People were, like, legit freaking out because they thought it was, like, a, a <laughs> friend's reunion. And they're like, oh, no, we got to, like, keep everybody calm and change her character so it wouldn't no. cause an uproar during now filming. Now she's Martha. 
Well, there was a whole thing, too, where she, like, had a smelly cat, and, like, it factored into the plot, but they had to get rid of it, just because... Just kidding, you guys. Stop Mm. it. Yes. But, uh, yes, it was actually Taylor Tate who came up with the the whole storytelling device of Martha's character and realized that... uh, This is quoted from her, that... So, I realized I had to figure out someone to tell Rachel that her memory was wrong. So, I went back to the book, and Polly's writing, and she said that Rachel very quickly mentioned how Tom used to tell her she embarrassed him at the work parties. So from that, I created Lisa's character, who was the boss's wife, to gaslight not only Rachel, but the audience. You think Lisa was this Upper East Side bitch. In reality, she wasn't. She was just plucked, uh, she was just a plucked line out of Paula's novel and turned it into a character. And I love that he ha- incorporated her character into it, because that's one of my favorite parts about the film, is her telling yeah. her that. Yeah. And us thinking, and us like, just believing, like, oh yeah, he's, he's some rich guy, so he has a nice job, so the boss of him, wife would be rich and snobby, and, like, look down on this girl making deviled eggs for a party. And in real life, like, she was just like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. Like, he was the dick. Like, right. you're fine. That yeah. was a good moment. And then, yeah, the, the spe- uh, specific lines, like, we all felt so bad for you. Right. Because he's such a bad guy. I was like, like oh. He got fired because he was sleeping with everyone in the office. Exactly. And I was like, I think that was probably one of the key moments. I was like, okay, Tom's a jerk. He's mm-hmm. probably the one who did it. Uh, yeah, I liked it, and for like the two moments she was on screen, she played a big role. Mm-hmm. Like, good for her. I just like also that she's this like Upper East Side rich woman, but she's still taking the train. Yeah, like I liked yeah. that thing too about her. It's humbling. Uh, let's talk about the production and cinematography. Charlotte Bruce Christensen, who's actually worked on other films such as Far from the Madding Crowd and um, Fences, which have also been adapted into films. Yeah, Fences was a play. It, that's actually coming out. It's August coming Wilson's, out, yeah. like, probably his most famous play. And then um, Far From Manning Crown's, like, a Thomas Hardy novel from, like, the 19th century. But Did it seems like she films? works on... Well, I've seen Far From Manning Crown. Fences isn't out yet. But I, uh, I think she must have an eye for production design because, like, it's interesting... That her all of her most recent projects are literary adaptations. It's an interesting. Well, it's funny because at the moment I'm literally reading Far from the Maddening Crowd. Oh, nice. <laughs> so now yeah. I'll go it's see her film story. and see what she did with that, yeah. and then I'll read this book and be like, okay, what, this is what she's done with two th- stories all I've read and seen, though. Yeah. yeah Far from the Maddening Crowd is a great story, and I highly suggest it for people who haven't read the book or watched the films. That's another story about strong women rolling up their sleeves and getting shit done. Yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, I yes, I enjoyed it just like this film. But uh, yeah, the the principal photography started on November fourth, two thousand fifteen, in New York, and wrapped up beginning of this year, January of two thousand sixteen. And apparently, uh, Charlotte likes to use a lot of close-ups, and especially on Emily Blunt's face. But she says, but that's sort of Charlotte's way. I think her way of shooting brings us as close in as possible to those fragile moments and you get in there and you see the grit and dirt and the physical of the emotional part and and that's something that I like that Emily definitely displays. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I agree. I I think the, I mean, there wasn't really a lot of technical crazy shots and not a lot of VFX, obviously, but the vastness of the different locations, like uh, from the train to the houses just how everything looks so suburban and dreary. Mm-hmm. There was really no hope anywhere. Yeah. The movie in general, yeah. I, well, we can talk about... That's more of a director's choice. So let's keep talking about cinematography. I thought, yeah, it was beautifully shot. 
Um, I liked the production design. I liked the way it looked. Even the scenes in the forest, I thought, were, like, well-lit. And I guess a lot of it was probably on location, but it looked really good, I thought. Yeah. And they actually built a train rig, a train set that they put on a rig, and they hired a bunch of uh, extras to fill the train. Hmm. And they, they moved it around and like to give the assimilation that they're moving on a train. Moving on a train. Oh, like, nice. Oh, well, they actually built a train um, for those scenes. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, let's, and Jeff, you mentioned it in the directing, but yeah, let's talk about Tate Taylor, known for The Help, Get An Up, and his short film Chicken Party, which really started his career. But uh, yeah, he actually, because of his connections uh, with DreamWorks on The Help, he knew Holly Barrio, who's the um, one of the directors of DreamWorks, and uh, she convinced him to read the book, and then after he did, he fell in love with the story and called her back be like, yep. I'm on board, and that's pretty much how it all started. Great. Yeah. But, uh, and then, yeah, I mentioned it before, met him, Emily and Paula in London. But the whole death, what did you think of how they directed the whole death scene? Well, it's funny because I was just reading your quote right here that he gave about it being like this intimate moment. Um, And I got the intimacy between him and Rachel, but not between him and Anna. And I don't know if he meant that for him and Anna, too, to have an intimacy. Oh, no, I didn't see it. I saw it. That was more just vicious. Yeah, because, like, I thought, because in my head, like, reading this, I would think, like, okay, like, that's their intimacy, and then Anna letting go of him, finally. Mm-hmm. But with her just turning the course, that Oof. was one of the moments I was like, what? Yeah, that what, was What is she me. doing? Like, I could like, hardly watch. It was almost, like, out of character for her to, like, I I didn't see it coming. I didn't see her going <laughs> up and twisting that thing like, he was next. Let's make sure he's really dead. I like that, though. I thought it was cathartic, because she's kind of been under his spell for so long, and then she has this moment to be like, yeah, dude, like, F you. <laughs> like, we're gonna, this is, you're done. Um, I think this is interesting, and I think we would be remiss not to talk about the comparisons with Gone Girl, because there's a lot of similarities, and I think the directing is part of the part of the thing that I think I would have liked to have seen more in this movie. Um, maybe style because like I feel like the reason I loved Gone Girl so much was because it was just had this sense of like mischievous fun and like I thought there was a sense of like kind of brooding kind of fun to it a little bit and I think it would have been like interesting to see something a little more like twisted and directed well, bigger I think I would well, have liked Gone to Girl s- they were able to portray that too because it was completely two separate stories we start right. off with one person and their story and them trying to figure this out and then like going over and seeing the opposite person's story mm-hmm. and how that played out so they were able I think to portray more of that right whereas we don't have his side we're not looking in from his eyes ever until the end I guess not even really then though like we just see flashbacks but yeah I just I think I I feel like it, they're calling this a thriller, and to me, I think in a thriller, I want to have moments of, and there were exciting moments, but I feel like if you're directing an exciting movie and there's no humor, it's more of a horror movie, and if you're directing an exciting movie and there's a sense of fun, that's when I call it a thriller. This was more of a suspense thriller. Yeah, you're right. A dramatic... Mystery thriller. Um, yeah, a dramatic... It's almost more like a drama, like a domestic drama with exciting elements, um, I don't know. I just think because so many people have brought up the comparisons to Gone Girl, I thought we'd be remiss not to mention them on this podcast. And I feel like the things that Gone Girl got so right, to me, revealed some of the shortcomings in this movie a little bit, personally. 
But I mean, I mean, a lot of movies and and television shows has that storytelling aspect of you see one person's side of a story and then you see the other. Right. I mean, it's not just Gone Girl, but like the disappearance of Eleni Rigby did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not something that's new right. to us. I think it was really well done. And you mentioned it before we went live, but you. You would have liked if it wasn't David Fincher's style. A little bit, personally, yeah. I think it w- I think that would have been good. Yeah, because like he did great on Social Network, um, and I think the 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 tone would have definitely been up David Fincher's alley as well. It could have, and I think that's what surprised me. It's like The Help and Get On Up are movies with kind of a sense of joy a little bit. And, like, you can't really direct joy into this movie. I mean, it's also what you're taking with what the book had. I mean, The Help has a lot of comedy written into the book. Yeah, like There was a lot of comedic characters going Uh through situations. We had comedy. We had, like, little pieces, like, when she's not... I mean, I guess it's not really that funny when you think about it, the fact that she's a drunk, but when she's, like not drinking and he gives her the beer and she's like oh no okay okay right that was the one moment in the screening i went to that people laughed um but even that i was like i don't know i just was that not like not enough humor and comedy that balance for you maybe and maybe i'm being too critical i and i do love to i just love to laugh a little bit when i go to a movie and i found this movie to be just i think there could have been a bit more relief for us, or wait, I just think it's a nice in for our characters to like them more. Like, what if Haley, if Megan Hipwell had had kind of like a sarcastic sense of humor? We might have liked her a little more. I just, for us saying we're having trouble connecting her because she's so numb and dull, maybe if she had a sass or an edge, we would have been like, even if she was still kind of cold, we might have liked her a little more. I don't know. Hmm. But that's just, that's my takeaway that would prevent me from giving this movie like an A+. plus. Personally. That there wasn't enough uh, levity in this Levity is a great word, Marissa. Yeah, that's. I would have been looking for a little more of that, I think. Okay. See, I mean, I can understand that um, that theory. Uh, when I went into this film, I wasn't expecting to laugh. Right. When every time I did laugh, I was like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. But, like, I'm not going into it expecting a comedy. Fair. I'm going into it expecting a thriller mystery. Yeah. True. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Part I of guess. it, too, for me was, like... Because you had seen the movie before me, and you had actually written a review on it, um, and I think that I kind of went in with lower expectations, <laughs> and maybe that's part of the reason also that I kind of liked it a little more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My review, I acknowledged the performances. I loved it. You can read it on BlackHollywoodLive.com or Sister Network. Uh, but yeah, tone was my biggest issue with this movie. Yeah. I just found it to be a bit somber, too somber for me. Like Dour. you wanted, you wanted dour. <laughs> dour was the word I used. Yeah, it would have been nice. Um, at the end, maybe to like bring up the tone a little bit, make yeah. it a little more bright, like even like I with- think at the end it did because when we saw her, like she she looks cleaner, she's cleaned up her act, she's sitting on the other side of the train now, like it did look brighter. Yeah, but even like even the outside, like I think it's still like the outside kind of still looked similar to the movie for me, and if it had been like a really bright sunny day, as where the entire film was in clouds, like would have been a cool. Okay. Here's an example. You're a big SVU fan, aren't you? Do you guys watch Law and Order SVU? I, I don't. I've seen. You've seen it. Few well, like there's elements of similarities, like murder and marital infidelity, and it, sometimes this show or the movie kind of reminded me of like a long SVU. But there's always iced tea to just be like a little funny. Like I would maybe Alice and Janney's character could have been a little more funny. Alice and Janney or, or Laura Pepper or Laura Pepper's character, yeah, Prepon. Um, yeah, like, even one character who just doesn't take everything as seriously as the rest of the characters, I would have maybe enjoyed, but... Yeah, I can see your point in that. Yeah. I mean, I can understand that, but I think that also where our lack of knowledge of not reading the book, maybe there was a character that was... True. The the comic relief, quote-unquote, and we just didn't see it. Yeah, good point. But, 
other well, other than that, let's move on to the makeup and wardrobe. Uh, Jeff, you actually found some interesting things about it. How about you talk about it? Sure, yeah. Um, Emily Blunt, to portray the alcoholic, they actually did use a lot of practical makeup to convey what was going on. So I was reading, um, for Emily Blunt, prosthetic people created molds that clipped onto her teeth to make her face seem puffy, which is really interesting. Because it is, I think people were worried that Emily Blunt was too beautiful to portray like a doubt, like a... Um, but they did a great job because the other thing they did was they used gray eyeshadow on her eyes to bring out the circles and they brushed spider veins on her face. And this is the most interesting to me. We see different levels of her drunkenness as the character. And depending on how drunk she was in different moments, they had three colored contact lenses, pink, red, and yellow to represent either that she was tipsy, drunk, or hungover. Mm. So, you know what I hate about that? What? That she was still beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, they took every effort they could to make her look like a messed up alcoholic, and she still was pretty in the film. Like, she still looks better than me waking up in the morning. That's not fair. Uh, yeah, it's not that. fair. Like, That's it, funny, though. They, they did that a lot in other um, actresses, too. Like, Z for Zachariah. Have you guys ever seen that? She film? didn't. I heard it was great. I didn't see that. Oh, one. it was great. Um, they, for Margot Robbie, they actually put makeup on her to look like more natural beauty. Right. Like, they kind of not. Not to sound terrible, but like they tried to ugly her up yeah. just to make her look like a normal it's human like, being. It's like, just cast a normal human being. Like, come on. I'm the like, office did. That's, yeah, it's you true. Know, that's not cool. I, there was an element. I thought occasionally Emily Blunt kind of looked like Kristen Wiig in this. Did you guys ever see that? There's like two moments on the train where she looked like Kristen Wiig in the Skeleton Twins to me. I don't know. Uh, I don't make that connection. That Fair enough. Long yeah. <laughs> Anyone, if you saw it in, if you, in the comments and you saw it, let me know. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's moving on to uh, editing, which I found uh, pretty interesting, uh, by Andrew Buckland and Michael McCuster, who's actually, uh, he's worked on, you know, Walk the Line, Through Ten to Yuma, Australia, mm. a lot of big movies, so he's definitely experienced. But the cool thing is, he, uh, they stopped, they finished filming in January 2006, and he already had one version of this film cut two weeks later. Which that's I mean super, wow. super fast turnaround, and uh, during this uh, obviously you know um, cutting films goes through several different uh, processes and whatnot, and he put a lot of temp uh, scores into it just to get the tone of the film, and uh, he yes, and this is where we also learned that there were two scripted scenes, two scripted love scenes that were cut out hmm. too, but the temp scores and we will. This kind of transitions us to sound as well. Also composed by Danny Elfman. He, on the flip side, actually hates temp scores. <laughs> and he says this is the bane of his existence. Funny. So we have the editor who put the temp score in, and then we have the composer who's like, I hate this. This is terrible. <laughs> um, working on the same film. Obviously, Danny Elfman, super uh, talented and a bunch of accolades. I mean, just going on his IMDb, he's done just about everything. But, I mean, uh, if you've ever seen anything with Tim Burton, I mean, that's Danny Elfman, like, pretty much. Right. That's what kind of surprised me, though, was I feel like Danny Elfman's always also the guy... Desperate Housewives. So. Yeah, Desperate Housewives, <laughs> yeah. Pushing Daisies. Like, I feel like he's often the guy you ca- um, hire to do, like, a whimsical fantasy score. So I was interested in him doing the... It was a great score. I just... I don't know if I'd seen this work from him particularly in, up until now. Um, there was, it was definitely different. Like, I mean, with Tim Burton, you get a lot of the whimsy but mixed with somber yeah um there was the musical tone in it kind of reminded me of some of the score of corpse bride hmm. in a way yeah. see that um yeah the cool thing about uh danny uh danny for this film he put in a lot of bass heavy rhythmic motor using 
objects, detuned mandolins, and screaming electric guitars Hmm. for a lot of the scores. And some of them were actually run backwards. So it gives that disoriented type of feeling cool. as well. It's like, oh, wow. Who, who would think to play your song backwards and gives it a different feeling? Um, which I, I really enjoyed, yeah. And other, the soundtrack is available on Amazon, so go go check it out and go listening to it. It's pretty creepy thriller. Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> like, creepy. Watching a movie, it's sometimes hard, when for me at least, when there's no lyrics to differentiate when music changes unless it's really drastic. So I didn't even yeah. realize how many uh, different Gift scores. Know. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's just freaking talented. So I'm glad that he composed this film because it felt dark throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm, it really certainly. wasn't a happy light moment, really, other than the beer scene. Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's talk about the promotion of this film. Finished at number one for the Paula... Uh, adaptation and the girl on the train just came a bit shy of expectations with the estimated 24.7 million from 344 theaters but uh jeff what did you think about the promotion for the film i thought it was well promoted um i take highland sometimes on the way back from work and there's that big poster on the corner right by uh hollywood and highland but it's tough because sometimes i feel like in this when i answer this question in anatomy if you live in LA, you see everything being promoted heavily. So I sometimes wonder like if this movie got as much rollout in like the Midwest. See, but... I'm like opposite of you completely because I had no idea that this was even being made into a film really? until you wrote your review. Oh wow, no idea, huh? Really? Wow. See, I knew about it because I was coincidentally I was in the Midwest when I first heard about the Girl on Train book because my mom's a big reader. Shout out to my mom. Um, <laughs> she's a big reader and she knew about this book before I did. Nice. And then it wasn't until later, until I came back to L.A., that I found out that they were adapting the book into a film. Well, I do like, though it is an adaptation, I always welcome non-franchise pictures, just because so many of the movies we get are, like, a part of these universes, or, like, they, you know, it's the fifth part two like, of yeah, The Hunger you know Games. Gonna, I mean, right. we're making five, uh, I know. five what's-it-called movies, the Fantastic, Fantastic Beasts. Beasts. Fantastic and so it's nice, it's nice to just get a standalone narrative. So, like, I do, I always applaud a studio, even though it is based on source material, who takes that risk, and I want to see it do well, because I wish Hollywood made more of these movies. Like, Money Monster and was one of my favorites well. of this year. And do it well, yeah, yeah. so... Um, for you, the most you, part, you like, want to see movies where there is no sequel. And I know. Basically. You just go and you watch the movie. The performances were great, and it's a clean movie. And you leave, and you go home. Well, you know, the last few anatomies I've done have been novels adapted to movies. You're right. Miss Peregrine. Yep. I did The Light Between Oceans. Yeah. Doing this one, like I've been reading a lot, you guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I have to go read this one. Um, yeah, but the box office is actually doing pretty well. It was number um, one, wasn't it? It was number one. It's made worldwide like forty-seven, forty-eight million. It's okay. probably around fifty million now, um, but the opening weekend of twenty-four and a half million. So yeah, ranked number one. It's doing really well. It only had a like forty-five million dollar budget, so it's already made its money back. And that's not even in DVD sales. That's just in theater tickets, and of course, given inflation. But it's it's a successful movie despite the lower kind of ratings. Well, uh, I never ever go off anything with Rotten Basin Tomatoes. Up. I think because 44 for me, is low. Yeah, for me, a lot of films I love, Rotten Tomatoes tends to score really low. Yeah. And so I just don't ever believe anything that I read off that. If I see having a bad score, I'll still go to the theater and see it. Like, I'm not going to judge if I should see it based off Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I usually will just kind of use my instincts, unless it's like a really low score. But then sometimes I'm curious as to why critics think it's so bad, so I'll still go just to... 
Right. Yeah. Um, I think 44 is super low. Yeah, I think that was too low. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't give it like a 90 to 100. I would probably give it maybe like a 78, 82. Mm-hmm. I was going to say range. like high 70s, low 80s. You know, it's funny. I feel like I've been critical of my review uh, today, but I actually did give it a 7 out of 10 when I reviewed it. So I think I liked it yeah, more than I'm presenting during this. It snuck into your mind. Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure. And there was moments I was like really excited about in the movie. So. Yeah. But overall, um, this was I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I probably will buy it. Great. DVD. Would you? You know, I'm not much of like a DVD owner. Or like, would you watch this film again? I would watch it. Is it rewatchable? See, I don't know if I actually I think would. it is. I think it's rewatchable because I think that there's little things that they put in throughout it that once you know the ending, when you rewatch it, you'll notice. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be fun to rewatch it knowing what Agreed. the ending is. All the little It um, also made posts. me want to go buy the book and make me want to read the book. So whenever a film does that, I think it's done its job. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Yeah, I think for me, I because it kind of bummed me out, I might not be <laughs> super excited to watch it again, but I, I don't want to take away from the movie. I also like really like super... Not super depressing, but I like like a lot of darker stuff and depressing yeah, for sure. stuff. So. Um, one really quick question: Do you think that Emily Blunt is enough of a star to carry a box office? Like, it's interesting. I'm surprised. I mean, she's huge. Yeah, but you do wonder. Her, yeah, this is her first major film that she's the main lead on. Because all besides Sicario, I guess. Yeah, but like even we did the anatomy of a movie over that and I remember clearly saying I was like yes Emily is one of the headliners but she's not the main character in the film you're right she doesn't anchor the movie I yeah. think that she was fine with anchoring this movie I think that she's a great actress I think she has great instincts as to what to do and she doesn't take anything too far she like I mean Devil was proud as she was over the top but she was supposed to be right She's so, so good in that movie, too. Yeah, I, I definitely think Emily Blunt has built the star power to carry this film. Yeah. And I think her performance definitely does carry it. I agree. And I think this will be a big movie for her. Like, I think she's A-list now. Oh, yeah, she definitely I think is. she's been A-list. Has she? Yeah, she's been A-list. In my mind, she's been A-list for a long time. Married to Jill Halford, how could you not? I mean, she, she's very talented. She's amazing. And if, there's, if Paula does another kind of book like this, I'll go read it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to Girl on Train a Dissection. In the meantime, where can everyone keep following you? You guys can follow me, Jeffrey C. Graham, at Jeffrey C. Graham on Twitter. Um, if you're into our sister network, After Buzz, and you watch a lot of TV, I'm currently covering Atlanta on FX and The Good Place on NBC, which both wrap fairly soon. So both great shows. I'd um, encourage you to tune into both of them and the After the Show. Time stamp on her show. I know. Shame <laughs> on me. I apologize if I. Uh, uh, you can it. find me at bfips14. And also, if you're a huge movie fan and love musical movies, tomorrow on Popcorn Talk, we're going to be discussing Little Shop of Horrors. So that should be fun. Awesome. And you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. You can follow all of us here on the Popcorn Talk Network at The Popcorn Talk. And we're dissecting films all year long. We have all the Oscar movies coming out. It's Oscar Award season. Award season. Award seasons. So, and we've covered a lot of anatomy of the movies with Emily Black. Go check out Sicario. Go check out Into the Woods. Go check out Z for Zachariah. <laughs> we'll mention a lot of those films. And yeah, we've covered them. Good chances, we've covered them. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for this particular dissection. Don't forget, you can uh, download the rundown in the description below and follow along with our research, and we will see you next time. Uh.
from producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff. We would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.